Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with founders doing amazing things in business and beyond. Listeners, you can support the continued growth of the show. It's so easy. Simply hit subscribe wherever you get your audio. We so appreciate it. On today's episode is Cole Shepard. He is the founding partner of Legacy Group, a leading alternative investment firm. His company focuses on profitable investment opportunities with high social impact in the US and Latin America. And their flagship portfolio company, Green Coffee Company, is Colombia's number one largest coffee producer with 10 million plus coffee trees planted across 7,000 acres. Before forming Legacy Group, Cole spent close to a decade at Price Waterhouse working in accounting, advisory, M&A, and consulting across the US, Bermuda, Hong Kong, and Beijing. He's an expert in emerging markets, as you might imagine, and is currently based in Medellin, Colombia. Speaking of Medellin, we dive into Cole's move from the US to Colombia and the cultural adjustments along the way, why he is bullish on Latin America as a market worthy of startup investment, the origin story of Green Coffee Company and the threats that macro risks such as climate change and labor play into the future of coffee as an industry and way more. So with that intro said and done, please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Cole Shepard. Give me the origin story. How did you begin Legacy Group? What were the circumstances under which you got started? Sure. So actually, before I came down to Columbia, I was living in Hong Kong. So I was doing M&A for PricewaterhouseCoopers. You know, I was doing a lot of banking, insurance, asset management deals, which really means just assisting on corporate acquisitions, private equity acquisitions, and got kind of tired of, of doing the, the big firm approach, right? So I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I was actually looking with the firm to basically build up new M&A practices, either in Latin America or Southeast Asia. And when I came down to Latin America, primarily Colombia, to check it out, I said, you know, why not start my own entrepreneur activities in country and do it with my own capital and, and really learn uh, from nothing. So I actually came up with why I came up with legacy, it was twofold. You know, my background was in, you know, M&A, financial services. My whole history with almost 10 years with PricewaterhouseCoopers was in financial services. And I wanted to do something I was I was proud of. So legacy has obviously a dual meaning. One is a legacy like an inheritance where you leave money. And the other legacy is, you know, what people remember you by. And so that's how I wanted to frame my businesses of what I was looking to do. What's the focus of your investments? We only invest actually in two companies. One is the Green Coffee Company, 
And the second is Polygonus, which I'm recording from today. So how we structure myself and my business partner, Adam Jason, how we structure our time is we only invest in businesses that we think are going to be best in the industry. We're very proud to put our name on. So we're not like a diversified VC fund or PE fund. We do very heavy concentration in a very limited number of portfolio companies. And we either invest our own capital and act as strategic advisors, which is really what we do at Polygonus, which is digital arts, entertainment, and video game design, along with a digital academy that they run here in Medellin, or things like Cream Coffee Company, where we actually founded the company and we actually act as management throughout. We still sit on the board. All strategic decisions go through us. We raise capital on behalf of the company and we represent the investors on the board of directors, but we actually basically act as high-level management on the company side. You know, that's a very involved process that probably takes, I would say green coffee takes up 90% of our time and then Polygonus takes up maybe 5 to 10% of our time. But basically what we want to be involved in is, I would say, companies that are going to be the future of the industry. How do investors take advantage on the other side if they want to, say, invest in Legacy Group and see some returns on that investment down the road? Sure. So we actually only do direct investments into the portfolio companies. So one of the things that I found with my experience of doing asset management deals in Hong Kong was there's a huge gap of, I would say, an underserved private banking market. And so if you have assets somewhere between a million dollars and 20 million, you actually get pitched the same products from a private bank that a retail investor would get, let's say that's worth $200,000. What investors really want to see is they want to see direct investments in things that they're exciting about, which we do. And then the other thing I saw when we're doing a lot of private equity is that a lot of high net worth investors, they don't want to just be blind LPs in a private equity fund with a really wide scope mandate, right? So if you invest in a healthcare PE, you know, anything within the realm of healthcare, whether you like the deal or not, they call your capital, you better commit or they're going to sue you. <laughs> no, you have to commit, even if you don't like the deal, right? And so you kind of blind set up for that. What we found with our investment base, which is really high net worth individuals, primarily in the United States, is they want to get in on certain deals, right? Certain direct placement deals directly in the portfolio company. And so when you invest with us at saying Green Coffee Company, that doesn't mean you have to invest in something like Polygonus, or you don't have to invest in, let's say we have a third portfolio company. And if we're doing, let's say, a Series A versus a Series B, it doesn't mean that since you invest in the Series A, you have to invest in the Series B or, or follow on rounds. So you have ultimate choice on where your capital goes. For our niche of investors, really, I would say most of our guys are probably worth 5 to $30 million, US dollars I'm talking about. Those direct placements where they directly into the portfolio company, they, they love it. They think it's a great opportunity. And when you can actually show them the value, something that's truly unique, you get a lot of success in the capital race. What are some key transformational strategies related to, say, business process, technology, the local economy that people have to be aware of? I mean, the biggest pushback and the biggest questions we really get around macroeconomic risk largely around Colombia, Latin America, emerging markets, frontier markets in general. And a lot of what we do for something like coffee, if I'm going out for high net worth investors on a vertical integration coffee play, 
most of our investors are entrepreneurs, right? Or they're used to investing in, in private companies, whether it be real estate or, or otherwise. They understand the risk profile of agriculture. They understand how vertical integration works in this macroeconomic scope when we have, you know, portfolio company in Colombia and that target market is the United States. We have processing throughout that chain. That's actually not difficult to get investors heads wrapped around. They understand the profile of earnings, the return profile that they're looking to get. The biggest thing to overcome is, you know, how do you forecast macro risk? How is Latin America going to work in the future and how does it work today? Right. So for some investors, you'll never be able to explain Latin America risk if they're only used to investing in South Dakota. And they'll say, well, anything outside like Florida is risky to me because I'm from South Dakota. Right? So if you can't get your head wrapped around Southern Florida, it's challenging to get people's heads wrapped around Latin America. And so what we see works really well is to walk through kind of how things work in, in Colombia and Latin America in general. And a lot of times we do this on a one-on-one -on -one basis with, with new investors and talk about, you know, all the major questions they have off the bat. You know, I'm concerned that are there any capital controls? In Colombia, there's not. What happens if you have a change in government or a change in the federation of coffee growers? You know, and you kind of walk them through what kind of happens, what's happened historically. And a lot of times it's actually just getting investors comfortable with how Latin America works because a lot of U.S. investors, especially, have never been here. When we bring people down to Colombia and we actually do the site visits, all the risk of people's heads like go away when they actually see the operations, understand Medellin or Bogota or Cartagena. But a lot of it is, you know, they're going in almost blind because most people, I mean, I would say maybe... 50% of people, if you pointed out, just said the word Columbia, where on a map are they going to point to? They're probably going to point to South Carolina for US investors. A lot of what we have to do with investors and we make ourselves available for is a lot of the education around Latin America, how the coffee market works in general. And we almost act as like professors about Latin America and about the coffee industry in general. There's probably a direct correlation to that site visit and size of check or comfort level around writing a check, I would assume. You probably want folks to come down and see the city and see the operation. We love having guys on, but I, I thought the exact same thing, Adam, when we first started the business. But actually, my largest investors, you know, we have, you know, let's say 100,000 is the minimum. I have individual investors that do upwards of $5 million, and they've never come down. Our largest investors, uh, most of the seven-figure investors that invest on a personal basis, they actually they're running businesses, they own businesses, and they actually don't have time to come down. So whenever I get to have a chat with them, I get to give them an update on what's going on. We have private calls and they always say they want to come down. But most of the guys that are writing the biggest checks, they, they honestly just don't have the time. So you mentioned capital controls, change in government. What else would you describe are the biggest macro risks at play? I would say most people ask about the recent presidential election where you had the first left-wing president ever to come into Colombia. And, you know, our left wing is a lot of times left, less left wing than some of the movement that we see in the United States. Colombia is historically a very right wing country, very capitalistic, very low, let's say, on capital gains, taxes, property taxes. When Americans come down and they see like the cost structures, they'll say this is so much cheaper than the United States. It's absolutely crazy. But I would say on a macro basis, you know, if you were to see large political swings is what, you know, most people equate everywhere in Latin America to be Venezuela. And that's where you got to kind of talk people off a cliff and say, you know, Colombia actually has real institutions, whether government, private or otherwise, that 
don't mirror that of a Venezuela. But when certain things happen, you say, okay, I see a left wing swing in Peru, for instance, and you say, well, how does that correlate to Colombia? You know, we have our executive management team stay on top of what happens in Congress in Bogota. We're a member of the SEA, which is a Council of American Enterprises. It's basically like a private business group that only the largest American companies get to. We have direct access to Congress in Bogota. We can act. Our actually CEO got to talk to Congress about how the future of the coffee industry should work. So our CEOs get the same, let's say, information as the CEO of Coca-Cola or, or General Motors, which is pretty cool. Cole, how did you find these first two portfolio investments? Like, when did you first come across Green Coffee Company and why did you get excited? I have to start at when I came down to Columbia. So my original thesis when I started Legacy and when I come down and started doing my own projects, liquidated all my 401ks, all my IRAs, all my investment portfolio that I had. I was 31 years old. I wanted to do my own businesses. And what I really wanted to do is say, I want to bridge what I saw is too much capital in certain financial centers like Hong Kong, like some of my peers that say we're living in Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, and they'll come down and buy one caps in real estate in Hong Kong, and they're just parking capital. That is a ridiculous use of capital to me when you're spending, you know, like call it like their parents' pocket money that they get as their like allowance, and they're buying condos in Hong Kong for 1% returns on an annual run rate on their investments. This is crazy. So there's too much capital. And what I saw when I was living in between Beijing and Hong Kong is there's unlimited demand for products from all over the world. In Asia, there's just, you know, the vast majority of the population of the earth is in, in Asia. And you just have an ever increasing middle and high class. And you're seeing products be even in the, uh, the five years I was between Hong Kong and, and Beijing. I mean, you see new products coming on the market all the time, whether it's Latin America products, African products, Sri Lanka products from everywhere, right? And so what I thought is there is an untapped market for both capital and goods and the trade flow between Latin America and Asia. So that was the original thesis. So I came down, started doing real estate deals, primarily like uh, foreclosure flips, where I actually were like reading bankruptcy documents in, in Spanish, getting into these poor, like uh, real estate deals, going to auctions. This is in Medellin, Colombia. And, you know, you're just going through these processes that are just absolutely crazy. You have like 50 properties you want to bid on and, and win. We ended up getting like three of them. It is just a mess of a process. And then we basically, I started getting into commodity trading. I had some peers that were doing coffee and flowers. So I started a little trading house out of Hong Kong, actually. And I was trading trade flow between Colombia, fresh cut flowers, mainly hydrangea and roses. Most people don't know, actually, but Colombia is the second largest exporter of fresh cut flowers in the world. So if you're having flowers and you're buying them at Whole Foods or Fresh Market or wherever you are in the United States, there's a very high probability those are coming from Colombia. That market is very, what I would say is very efficient. Like it's already a tap market. The Asian markets were quite difficult to get to. People weren't really trading those markets as much. And I still had peers in South Korea, Japan, Southern China. We sold some in the Philippines and Indonesia. And we built a little trading house in Medellin to service those markets, small commodity trading. But that's kind of how I got into that trade flow market, right? Of how to do product trading with foreign markets, running trading houses. What we came across is a real estate group that was comfortable doing, let's say, multifamily deals, small building deals in, in Colombia, so comfortable with macro risk. And they asked me to create a product around an ag deal. 
And so we created actually the green coffee company around that theme at first. It was almost like an asset management product to where, you know, we knew if we could buy at scale, acquire at scale, consolidate infrastructure and sell a little further down the value chain, your yield would be higher than if you were just to buy a shopping mall and just yield it out to a property manager and see what you get. That was the original thesis. But as we began, we're running the business two, three years in, we're saying there's a lot more to this business than being a purely asset play. And it's not an asset play. You can build a whole ecosystem around this. There's huge gaps in the macro market in Colombia within the coffee industry, and we can be a lot more. And so that's when we started going further into more capital raise, really building out executive management teams that are world-class here in Colombia. And really started throwing, I would say, oil on the fire or gasoline on the fire, which is, you know, from going from raising 6 million bucks to raising 65 as of today, really in the last two years. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What does the operation look like today? So it looks like seven-plus million trees have been planted. You've got over 6,000 acres. I would imagine you're one of the largest exporters of coffee to markets like North America and beyond. Are you purely wholesale B2B? What is the business model here? As of right now, so we have a little over 10,000 acres as of today, about 13 million trees, which puts us as the number one coffee producer in Colombia. And for people who don't know from a macroeconomic basis, the national product of Colombia is coffee. And so it's the third largest grower of coffee in the world, but the second largest of growing Arabica coffee is what we specialize in. There's two types of coffee. One is Robusta, which will go to your very cheap like uh, instant coffees and it's just generally doesn't taste as good. And then Arabica. So if you're going to your $8 Americanos on the streets of New York or San Francisco, I guarantee you're drinking Arabica coffee, which is what we specialize in. I would say within the next couple of years, we'll be the largest consolidated producer in the world. We're actually almost there. And then so the business model right now, so this year we'll finalize, we'll sell about 10, 11 million pounds of green coffee this year. Largely to large international exporters and importers. Our clients are the largest players in the world, whether that be Sukafina, Falcon, Liston Bleiser, SKN, Car Cafe. These are the big coffee players. Next year, we'll start moving into roasted coffee. And so we'll set up facilities. Uh, we have partnerships in the United States where we can do what we call toll roasting. We'll start moving our coffee through that value chain. And by moving into what I would say is a consumer product, you start hedging your risk away from commodity C markets. The biggest macro risk, to move back to your kind of previous question, Adam, on, on macro risk, not only in Colombia, but really in the coffee industry, is if you had a C market on, a, let's say, a commodity exchange, on any commodity exchange, go below a cost of production. And it has happened in the past. And in reality, there's no way to 100% hedge that risk out. So as of right now, you know, when we we can produce green coffee at maybe a dollar ten a pound, this year we'll be averaging between a dollar ninety and two oh five probably per pound. So it's a healthy gross margin. But there have been a couple instances in history where the green coffee price can go below the cost of production. 
And if you don't have you know, a mountain of retained earnings to buffer for that, there's a risk. So one of our key focuses now is really moving into that roasted channel, largely in a B2B format. So large consumer institutional clients, retail clients such as grocery stores, churches, hospitals, that kind of play. And then the other thing that we're doing that's unique in the coffee industry is focusing heavily on byproducts. So right now we're in the process of building our own ethanol distillery, which is a fancy name for a, a facility that can make vodkas, gins. Aguardiente is a product, alcohol product that's very uh, famous here in Colombia. Not so famous away, but here it's a massive seller. And we're going to build a facility that can do 12,000 liters of pure ethanol per day here in Antioquia. And basically what that does is it takes the coffee residue. For people who don't know, coffee comes in a cherry and you only use the seed in traditional coffee farming. The rest is really just thrown away. But that makes up 50 to 60% of the weight of a coffee cherry. And right now, if you just throw it away, you put it in a field that can be used as fertilizer. If you don't store it properly, it actually can be a pollutant. And we're focusing a lot of management time and attention on not only monetizing that, but do what's best for the coffee industry here in Colombia and start using those byproducts. And our first use case is a, a full-fledged ethanol facility, facility, which will be super exciting. So if you just take a look at the coffee industry more broadly, like some of the risks that I understand, you know, one, climate change, because the more climate change impacts your ability to grow, the further up in elevation you've got to go. There's sort of, sort of a limited amount of, of mountain range available to grow good coffee. So climate change can impact production. And also, I would think labor is also a bit of a micro risk as you scale. Do you also agree that those are two key risks that we need to be discussed or what else am I missing here? Adam, I think you pointed out the two perfect ones. Actually, it looks like you've done your diligence on the coffee industry. So it's you're very well prepared. So I would say climate risk is huge, right? So no matter what the political viewpoint on climate change, it's definitely affecting the coffee industry. And what it really means is that there's certain areas of the world in 30 years that will not be able to produce Arabica coffee. And there's two ways to really mitigate that risk. Well, there's three ways to mitigate the risk. One is move to areas that are going to have coffee production in the future, which really it's an altitude game, which is you're exactly right on. You have to move further up a mountain to get the prime Arabica coffee, both production and flavor profiles, right? The quality of the coffee is highly dependent on that altitude. The other is, if you didn't do that, you could theoretically stay in the same regions, but you need to do hybrid. It's like uh, some uh, uh, biosciences around the Arabica tree. And there are people working on this now is where you're splicing things like Robusta and Arabica coffees together. Some of our R&D guys are actually looking at it right now. And what it does is a, a Robusta, which is not as flavorful of a coffee, but it's one, it's people like it because it's got more caffeine, <laughs> you know, frankly, and it's hyperproductive, right? So if you could theoretically spice that with an Arabica tree, Robusta grows almost anywhere, by the way. The biggest producer is Vietnam, but you don't need specialized growing conditions to really do Robusta at scale. But the value premium on that is, is much lower. So people are looking at splicing that. And the third way to really mitigate a lot of the risk as you need to use like high class management team and agricultural procedures that are world class and you have to stay on top of everything that's happening globally. So, for instance, when we go into acquisition scenarios of new farms, all the climate risk 
it goes in line with how we acquire farms. We don't acquire in areas that will not grow coffee in 30 years. So, I mean, that would be a people ask me all the time, are you going to replicate what we're doing in Colombia and other regions? And a lot of people think of high end coffee regions being like Panama or Costa Rica. Frankly, those places are going to be incredibly difficult to grow coffee 50 years from now because the altitude is so low, right? And actually the cost of the land is is largely going, one, it's dollar based and two, it's going for real estate development. It just becomes unprofitable to grow in a lot of those regions. That's why you're seeing a lot of the Costa Rican farms in Panama going more towards a hospitality push rather than to grow at, let's say, an institutional size on, on coffee farms. That say the climate change side, which is massively important, and it needs to go into everything you do as a consolidated coffee grower, for sure, for sure. The other is labor, which you're you're very right on. As we scale, so when we started, we were probably a management team of 15 people, right? And then during a harvest period, you'll build out, they're called recollectors in, in Colombia, which is the coffee pickers, right? And you only have them for part of the year. It's more of a transient workforce that go through the different coffee areas when you have a harvest, you pay per kilo. And their whole role is they make more money than they ever would make in a, let's say in a, a regular job, like a nine to five job doing the coffee picking. Since they make they, almost like it's an arbitrage labor force where they say, look, I can make three times what I'd make in a standardized job by moving between these different coffee regions because it's so time sensitive. If you were to not have those pickers, coffee can fall off the tree and it becomes 100% waste for the coffee farmer or the estate owner, right? So they're willing to pay these workers pretty well to make sure they do their job appropriately. As we continue to scale, labor becomes more of a risk. You're exactly right. So this year we had almost 2,000 pickers on our farms. You know, when you're covering 10,000 acres and you have, you know, you need to have all this coffee harvested really within a two to three month period, which I would say is the core harvest. We're in the core harvest right now, as we speak, by the way. You have to like do more human resource planning, human capital planning, come up with where are these people going to live? How do you set up the lunches, the dinners? How do you structure a workforce that's much larger? There's no coffee organization in Colombia that formally employs nearly as many people as we do. And that becomes you need to build world-class platforms to really run enterprise-level coffee farms. But you're creating a, an ecosystem that'll be around forever. It's like doing a business instead of doing a deal. That's the way I would equate what we're doing. Your background's in deal-making. I mean, you're a finance guy, you're a corporate M&A guy. It sounds like there's a bit of a learning curve in terms of getting up to speed on enterprise level resource and systems planning here. So how did you manage to do that? I would say I learned it kind of as I went, you know, mm. as I started my own businesses. So actually I was down in Columbia about three years before we started the coffee company. So of me building little businesses, they're nowhere near as impressive as anything we've done with Green Coffee or Polygonis. You learn kind of how to scale employees over time. And, you know, when we first started, you know, I was one of the management team of Green Coffee, right? And as we began to build, you know, you're sitting in a COO, a CEO one day, the head of trading another day, you're the CFO another day because you just have limited resources, right? But as we begin to scale, you come back to nowadays, we're almost in the same world as I used to be. You know, when you do an M&A transaction, I talk to the CFO, CEO, their head of strategic planning. And these are really smart guys. Now on the coffee side, we hire the best and the brightest in Colombia. And it's almost like 
you're, you can breathe light <laughs> because I'm back to, you know, the sophisticated world. We can have real world discussions about macroeconomic risk. We don't have what I would say is a, a local talent pool here in Columbia. We have an international talent pool. Our guys could easily go work in New York or London or Tokyo or wherever. And we can talk about real world issues. We talk about the future of the coffee industry, not how do we get through till tomorrow, which is the average Columbia business. Can you talk about your experience in M&A in markets previous to Columbia? So you came over with experience in China, in Bermuda, in the United States, obviously. What are the cultural differences in some of these countries that impact your ability to effectively get deals done? What did you need to learn? And where do you think folks that are looking to source deals or do deals abroad, what do you think are some of the blind spots here? I would say the cultural differences are by far the most prevalent in my history. So I'll, I'll give you some examples. So you touched on my background perfectly. So when I was doing business with PricewaterhouseCoopers in the United States, I did mostly biotech and venture capital firms that funded the same biotech companies, right? When I went to Bermuda, I was doing private equity, hedge funds. We had a big offshore bank that we audited there. And you, you know, kind of delve into other industries. But my background was really financial services, right? And so when I was in Bermuda, that was my first chance to really work outside the United States where not everyone grew up in North Carolina. You know, I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, went to NC State. When you go work at PricewaterhouseCoopers in Raleigh, North Carolina, most of the people around you are from Raleigh, North Carolina. And, you know, it's kind of a homogeneous population. When I went to Bermuda, you know, I was one of the only American guys there. I moved there when I was 25, you know, got an offer. And most of my peers were Irish, South African, you know, British, Canadians. We had people coming in from the Philippines. We had peers that were Japanese because you have to cover a wider scope. You need international talent in a place like Bermuda. So that was my first kind of taste of what it's like to work in a really international environment with very, very, very intelligent people. And people behave in different ways. I remember, you know, the first time I got there, you know, I'm, I'm used to a Raleigh, North Carolina English accent. My roommate when I lived in Bermuda was from Northern Ireland. I couldn't understand anything he said. Not nothing, nothing. Right. So you start to learn all like you start learning like, oh, if I'm South African, I speak English in this manner. If I'm from the Philippines and my coordinator language is different than English, I'll, I'll speak and you can kind of guess where people are from and you kind of guess how people behave. When you move to Hong Kong, you know, I took the role when I was 28 years old, start doing M&A. It's called a pan regional role. So we only had three offices doing what we did. It was Hong Kong, New York, London. We'd cover anything that wasn't in the Americas or in Europe, basically anything in all of Asia. So, you know, I was doing deal. We would go to Malaysia. I've done deals in Dubai. We'd be doing deals in obviously Hong Kong, all throughout China. We do. I did a lot of deals in South Korea. And by learning and being around people, you understand kind of how they approach business, how they approach life, how you move quick, how you move slow. If I was to characterize someone coming from Hong Kong, it's hyper capitalistic. People think, you know, New York is might be the most capitalistic place on earth. I would argue it could potentially be Hong Kong, right? It is ultra aggressive. There's so much capital available. And even with all the modern political things going on in Southern China and Hong Kong, 
it's an ultra aggressive atmosphere, but it's a lot of fun, especially when you're young. If you were to go into a business deal with someone from Hong Kong, it's very different than if I was doing a, be- a deal or talking about business with someone in Beijing. You know, in Beijing, it's much more similar to Colombia. You know, a lot of it's relationship based. A lot of it is where instead of drinking coffee like we do in in Colombia, and you might have a meeting, like you might have a pre pre meeting. <laughs> you know, here in Colombia, we're drinking coffee for an hour, talking about a potential for a business transaction. You might do the same in, in somewhere like Beijing that the cultural standards, you go out for tea, you get to know each other first, see if you remotely trust one another. And, and that'll that'll resonate through every culture. Every culture is slightly different. They'll all have their nuances. And especially this all kind of links back to like, how do you do deals? You need to be super comfortable being in country and doing your best to fit into the cultural atmosphere. If you come down, especially to a place like Colombia or Beijing as the reference point, and you come down with an ultra New York City aggressive behavior, do this deal this weekend or it's going to, you know, we're not doing anything and you go too hard, you'll, you'll lose it. You'll lose it. You have to fit into the local culture. And that was a massive change for me coming from Hong Kong and being American is when things take naturally take longer here. When I'm buying coffee estates, when I was the one originally doing all the original deals, you know, I might have to meet 10 family members who are all on the public deed for the coffee farms. And you're going out to lunch with them. You know, it's not owned by one guy. It's owned by three brothers, two uncles, a sister and a neighbor that they owed money to. So they had to put them on the public deed. You know, and everyone has to 100% unanimously agree to a deal. It could be frustrating if you think the world is in your view, but you kind of just have to show up and be ready to either get kicked in the teeth or be surprised or whatever. Go into meetings fully knowing that you have no idea what's going to happen and you better be ready to roll with it, which I would recommend in markets that you're not familiar with. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What are some of those cultural nuances that you had to learn in those first couple of years coming to Colombia and then settling. Language aside, what else did you have to learn? Absolutely. So I would say slow down in Colombia or you're gonna not not like so much offend people, but you're gonna push them harder than they want to be pushed and it's gonna ruin everything. You have to in Colombia it's definitely a slower pace and it really doesn't matter. I I've, I've heard, you know, we we always have debates whether Bogota is that much more international than Medellin. For people who don't know, Bogota is the capital by far the biggest metro area in Colombia. Medellin is the number two city. We constantly have feuds between those two people from different regions saying, my city's better, the other city's better. But both honestly run in a slower pace than what you'd get if you were used to working in London, New York, Tokyo, wherever, right? It's just not that same Western international pace. If you look like me, you better be able to speak Spanish, right? You better be able to, because there's no excuse, right? You're coming from the Americas. Everyone knows you're from a place that should theoretically speak Spanish. You have no excuses. If you came down and maybe if if you were from, you know, an Eastern Asian country, most of the Colombians are not going to look at you and say, I, I need, you need to speak perfect Spanish. But if you, if you look reasonably close, 
you, you need to be able to speak Spanish. And if you don't, you're not going to actually get it. You cannot speak through a translator. Everything here is very personal. So you can't do deals via Zoom. You can't do it over just a phone call and think things are going to happen. There's a lot of coffee meetings, a lot of lunch meetings, a lot of in-person, something that you know maybe you and I think we can do a real estate deal in an afternoon, and we can, and if we're doing it in New York or Miami or wherever, but or in the United States, let's say. But here, you know, there's a lot more culturally significant things that you have to do to get buyer and seller comfortable with another. It's not always just a transactional piece that you have to kind of take care of. And so those two items, I think, took me a lot of time. How you dress, for instance, is actually very important in Colombia. I remember going to meetings uh, in suits when I first came to Colombia in Medellin, and people straight up told me and said, do not wear full suits when you're going to business meetings in Medellin because people think you work for somebody else and they'll never take you seriously. So you have to dress como, like how I'm dressing today, which is a bit more casual. You still wear button-up shirts, but you wear jeans and nice boots and things. And that's how, it sounds cliche and silly, but it's really how entrepreneur and business leaders dress. People, most business leaders, unless you're running a bank, you dress more casual and you'll make people a little bit uncomfortable if you came in and I'll put it this way. You'll put make people very uncomfortable if you come in a three piece suit. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. I think that's becoming true across the board in North America these days. Were you fluent in Spanish, Cole, before you arrived? Oh, no, no. I took Spanish through high school painfully, painfully slow. I would say it was my worst subject. You know, Raleigh, North Carolina, again, I grew up in the suburbs of North Carolina. When you're a kid and you're not that bright, you know, and you think, oh, why would I need foreign language? You do the bare minimum in high school. Then you do the bare minimum in university to get through and then say, I'm never going to use this. And then before you know it, you're living in Colombia and you say, man, I wish I would have taken that seriously. And so that, I mean, my first six months, I said I was doing a private school are studying at a private university called AFIT, which is probably the best private university in Medellin. You know, I was doing that four hours a day, in, uh, Spanish immersion. And then, you know, you're trying to run businesses when you're outside. I'm going to tell you, my brain works more on the math side than it does on the languages side. When you get out of four hours of straight Spanish learning, when your Spanish is like a two-year-old child level, you're about dead at 12 in the afternoon. And then you actually got to go do the business stuff uh, when you were first starting. So that was an aggressive ramp up period, but I would say completely necessary for anyone, especially if you're going to take Latin America business seriously and you're coming from the United States, you, you need to speak Spanish at at least a 13 year old kid level or else you're going to be in trouble. On the personal side. So as a place to settle down, raise a family, have some children, is Medellin a, a place to be? Is it a good city to do that? Absolutely. You know, I have a wife and I just had a kid, almost a year old now. I would say Colombia it, it, it's different though. You know, if you want the, you know, the let's say the cookie cutter house and you're used to the suburb life, let's say the cliche of North Carolina that I always use because I'm from there, it doesn't really exist in, in Medellin. It's much more of an urban environment, uh, much more city focused. You don't have to drive everywhere. One of my biggest complaints about the United States, whenever I go back and I see my brother, you know, living in South Carolina and you say, okay, I'm going to come to your house. You got to drive 20 minutes to get there, or I'm going to go to the grocery store. It's going to take 20 minutes to go to Whole Foods or whatever it is. You know, it's a, it's a different environment. And if, it, it, if you have an outgoing spirit 
and you want to learn new things, it's different. If it's more like I'm really comfortable in my bubble in, I don't know, Salt Lake City, it would be something that would be very challenging to do, especially when you have a family. I would say if you're a young guy, young girl, and you're coming out and, and wanted to try something new, especially in the entrepreneur set, it's very easy. But as soon as you have the the family stuff, it would be more it would be more challenging. What are some of the outsourced sectors that U.S. based startups, let's say, are looking to Colombia to fill in terms of capabilities? Like, are are there certain teams? Are there certain capabilities that are popping up in Colombia, in Medellin, that are supporting and or getting directly involved with the U.S. startup scene? Absolutely. I would say the best example is where I'm sitting today with Polygonis. These guys have about 100 people that work largely on video game design. So what you're seeing in video game design is that, one, you have epicenters of value of of really talented human capital that create most of the high-end video games in the world. And whether that's in Seoul, Korea, say San Francisco, US, or Montreal, Canada, these talent pools are limited and they have almost unlimited demand for the product, but they have a limit of the supply, right? And the supply being human capital. So, you know, in the past, they would go to places, uh, the US startups that say they want to do a new that's say single A, double A video game, usually not the triple A's that are done by Microsoft and whatnot. They'll outsource a lot of this work. A lot of it was going to Central Europe. That's cut off. A lot of there was a lot of programmers that were working, let's say, out of Ukraine, probably five years ago. A lot of that's migrated. You know, you had a lot of programmers that are working out of South Korea. Now that's becoming much, much more expensive. And so our team at Polygonis is picking up video game contracts from a lot of the Western nations, not just they're doing, I think right now they have some with US companies, they have some with some New Zealand companies, they have some with some British companies. And the reality is, is these guys can run at an international capital level or international human capital level, both at the programming and at the art design and sophistication. But, you know, there's honestly a discount on the price, right? So those outsourcing services are becoming massively valuable. I would say the digital arts and entertainment market would probably be one of the largest coming out of Medellin. Now, you have some of the less skilled stuff happening uh, in Colombia as well, both within Bogota and Medellin, like call centers where it's just English fluency, you know, and they're basically it's just outsourced at a, let's say, at a discount in price than you'd get from someone doing running an outsourcing facility in Kansas, for instance. But I would say the digital arts. And then there's also a, a really high level engineering presence here in Colombia. Wishing you the best in 2024 for both the Legacy Group and also, of course, Green Coffee, Polygonis. What are you focused on next with respect to either fundraising or, or the operations of both of these companies? And where can people learn more about um, the trajectory of all of this online? Where do you hang out? So I would say the big focus for green coffee would be the the development that we're doing right now. We're building a lot of infrastructure, both on the distillery side and on the coffee processing side. Really, I think in the next year, we'll be focusing on becoming the best in the world and largest in the world on the coffee side. We will be engaged in some capital raise activity, but you know, capital raise is probably less exciting than building a distillery, for instance. Polygon aside, you know, they're building out their digital academies here in Colombia and throughout Latin America. They'll be launching a B2C academy. And for people who don't know, 
they really teach people how to work in video games, right? They'll teach you art design, they'll teach you software engineering, and they're basically building that new breed of talent for that unmet supply that exists within the world of video game design. And they'll be expanding throughout Colombia and expanding probably throughout Latin America here in the next year. And I think that'll be a, a major focus for that team. Where we hang out online, uh, you can always come see us on our primary webpage at Legacy Group at www.legacy-group.co. And you can find us on LinkedIn. I would say LinkedIn is our primary channel where we kind of uh, communicate with our investors, communicate what we're doing at both Green Coffee Company and Polygonis. So if you look up Legacy Group operating out of Medellin, Colombia, you'll definitely find us on LinkedIn. Well, Cole, thanks so much. Appreciate the time, man. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Adam. My pleasure. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Entrepreneurs Exposed is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at Scriberbase.com. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. It helps our audience find us. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash E2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us, from renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Cast.